Hello, welcome to Full Circle with Garland. I'm a leader in the DEI space and have spent 20 years of my career in human resources. I've been having meaningful conversations about career development with my friends and colleagues, many of whom are rarely heard on stages and podcasts. I am excited to bring you their stories each week. I will be sharing how their diverse backgrounds have shaped their work, the lessons in their career highs and lows, and the importance of recognizing the full circle moments in life. Thank you for joining me, and I hope you enjoy this week's interview. Welcome to Full Circle with Garland. Today's special guest is Aiko Bethea. Uh, she is one of my LinkedIn, I guess, thought leaders. There are people that I follow that I enjoy the content they post. Um, she's one of these folks for me. Um, and then I had stumbled upon an interview that she did with Brene, and I love Brene. And so I just thought, wow, if I can find a way to connect with her in some small way, I feel like I my, my, my year will have been made. Um, and so I'm excited to have her on the podcast today. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about her first. Um, she is the founder of Rare Coaching and Consulting. Um, she's a leader, builder, and connector. Through her work, she coaches leaders and organizations to remove the internal and external barriers to inclusion, allowing them to understand each other as people, colleagues, and teams in more connective ways. Um, she is, I'd say, been doing this work before it was popular. So I love having on the, I call them the OG diversity folks, equity folks, because this isn't new to them. Um, and I think they bring a, just another voice to this work because it's this is long-term marathon work. Um, and so I'm happy to have you on today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here with you. So I usually dive in talking about, you know, what kind of upbringing you've had, how that shaped you, um, and what you feel like has called you to doing what you do now. Yeah, so I would say um, these are maybe little known facts, but are, I guess, becoming more known <laughs> as I talk a little bit more about myself, but that I was raised in a household that was a Japanese-speaking household because my mom is um, Japanese and moved here when she was in her uh, mid to late 20s and in South Carolina, Spartanburg, South Carolina, and we were poor. I don't like saying low income. We were poor. And the community I lived in was a all black community, which is usually often the case when you're lower income. So I had the great gift of enjoying both, I guess, sides of my culture, like being able to be inside and raised in a Japanese speaking household and with my grandmother who later came here to the States and attending a school and being in a community where everyone looked like me. And so that has always been a big part of who I am and how I show up in the world and being able to be connected to the um, idea of a first generation person here who's always translating systems and processes. Many people will relate to that who are first gen. Um, and also just being in community with people who look like me, who are also um, coming against the same challenges, lower income, being black or brown in this country and what that means. And in the South, and it's uh, race means something totally different when you're raised in the South and Spartanburg, South Carolina is uh, it's it's really you're getting into the nitty gritty of a lot of things in our history that still show up today. Yes. So this is news to me. I had no idea. This is like 
my favorite thing to talk about is people whose home lives are totally different than their, you know, day to day, what you do when you go to school. And so when you're raised in a household that Japanese is the primary language, um, how does that, I think, color your world at home? And then when you go into school or, you know, stores out in the world, and you're hearing this other language that's not Japanese, and seeing things that culturally may look different, how did that, I guess, did you at the time realize that? Or when did you realize that? So I think that, um, you know, for me, what's most acute in knowing, recognizing that I am somebody different or othered was more so in the USB, the stark difference between black and white. And I can talk about that later, but I feel like when you're a person of color, you're still dealing with some of the same biases. So I don't think I noticed it that way, um, in that way, in terms like this racial difference. But I did notice that like if my mother came up to the school, other students recognize, oh, wait a minute, her mom's something different, right? Um, but I do, I probably have a different experience in the, the how the Black culture is often portrayed where people say that, you know, our culture can be one that can be pretty insular or we have a really homophobic culture or what have you. And my experience in the Black community has been that it has really embraced people who are different, people who might be perceived as an underdog or um, community is community and family is family and how you show up for each other. So that was a big part of what I learned. Um, and I didn't really get the othering part based on my identity until I was actually taken out of, you know, an all black space and put into a space that was more so all white. So it was a stark difference. Um, but when you ask me that question about how does it show up, it's, it's, it's translating systems all the time and kids are always doing it anyway, but you're doing it in a different way when you see how people are engaging with your family. Right. So if some you notice that somebody's actually cheating you on the amount of money you're getting back or I notice that, hey, we don't really go through the drive through at McDonald's because people can't understand my mom's accent. Or these are these things that you start noticing and they're just signifiers of what's mm -hmm. an in group and what's an out group. And you also understand really clearly what people expect of you without them even knowing they expect that of you. Right. And so yes. you're just so much more aware of what the unspoken rules are in culture and society. I totally, I get that. Um, it, I remember being a kid and um, we made everything at home. Like going to the restaurant was like a, a, like a birthday, an occasion. Like there was a reason you went to the restaurant because otherwise you made everything at home. And breakfast, made your lunch every day, you know, everything was at home. And it wasn't until I think I was older that I realized like people are driving through like places and, and doing all of these things like all the time. And I, I, that was normal for me to eat at home. Like, this is what we do. Um, and so it's been interesting. It's been very interesting to notice that. And so when I think about what you do um, and how you've come to this work, when you started to move into the white only spaces and get a better sense of, oh, there's difference here, um, what did that, I'd say, look like for you? So that happened at a really young age. And usually with uh, people of color, it does happen 
our sense of racial identity happens younger because we realize what we're not able to do and why are being different treated differently, which isn't often the case with people recognizing their whiteness or that race exists or it is a thing. So for me, it happened at a young age. And um, at my school that I went to, this public school, Title I school, and about five, several low-income housing uh, communities went to that school. So everybody had free reduced lunch, um, but they had this new gifted program called Pages where it wasn't housed at my school. So I would be bused once a week to a white school where it had nicer amenities. It was the first time I saw uh, parents actually in the school in the middle of the day, like these people don't work. Uh, It was the first time um, the way that I spoke, the way that I talked, the way that I looked was not what was the norm. And I do remember the teachers trying to figure out what to do because that that first year when I was in this program, the particular school I was at, they didn't have free and reduced lunch. And they were trying to figure out how was I going to eat. And everyone else had the shiny lunch boxes with Capri Suns and all the expensive snacks and things. And even the way that I spoke was really different. So it was the stark difference of knowing that, you know, which one doesn't belong, which one is not like the others. Uh, so I think that's the first time I really noticed, well, what is it? And you can easily say it was a, um, that's a conflation of both class, but also with race as well. So that was when I recognized whiteness and myself in relationship to that. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, this means your work, you, you're probably pulling from it all the time because when you have an upbringing like this, that you get to translate systems you see disparity, you're very clear on the fact that there's something going on here underneath the surface, or sometimes very clearly in your face. Um, How do you bring this to your work? Like, what is it about, you know, this work that I guess called to you? Because, you know, you before were an attorney, which, I mean, that sounds very like, we know the rules, we know how the rules work, the systems, we're keeping the systems kind of the boxes, the boxes that we know we need to you know, keep things in. So tell me about that. So I will say probably my perspective of law and attorneys are a little bit different. Like I see them as being disruptors. When you think really? about Thurgood Marshall and you think about the civil rights movement and you think about how law was... Um, was challenged. What does it really mean? When you think about even how race in America was created and codified, it was through law, but at the same time, challenge it and get around the boundaries. When you think about us moving from segregation to integration, that was by law, right? So law is also a tool of disruption. And so I saw it like that. And I think that when I think about my journey, how I bring, when you're saying these experiences, how they show up in work, I know that my two values have always been justice and loyalty. And the way that loyalty shows up for me a lot, what people experience who aren't in personal relationship with me is my loyalty to community. And community to me, to me, community to me looks like people who don't usually have a voice or who are treated in such a way that they're disempowered. So I have a lot of loyalty towards that. And I actually think that it aligns with the idea of when the ones amongst us who are treated in the most marginalized ways are, tr- are actually serviced, so does all of society, right? be served, is served. 
Um, and so justice works really well with that. So I think that it's hard for me to see something and not understand, okay, or not consider who's being harmed by this, who's being helped, how do we make this better? So, and even in practicing law, it was initially in a big firm practicing uh, litigation work. A lot of the decisions I've made, like a lot of first gen people, um, not only first gen in this country, but maybe who's gone to college have been financial decisions. So the college that I went to, they gave me the most money, you know, going to Smith College, they gave me the most money. I went there. Hey, going to law school. Hey, that being an attorney is going to pay. I'm not going to have to worry about keeping the lights on. Oh, going to Chapel Hill, which is a state school instead of going to Yale is about, hey, it was going to be cheaper. Let me get if I get in there, I can defer and pay, you know, pay a state tuition. So a lot of my decisions were made by um, financial need, even going and working at a large law firm. Oh, they're going to pay me this versus me being in a um, nonprofit, which is probably the work that I would have enjoyed more. I did end up going to work at the city of Atlanta. I worked for Stacey Abrams on her team in the legal department. Um, and after that, I realized, wow, a lot of my time is spent in community where I love spending my time. I want to do more service type of work and ended up going to Gates Foundation. So I think that all the time, the, the couple of things in my life experience that can always, that always informs what I'm doing and how I'm doing it and how I'm showing up is part of it is the rigor of legal training. And I do think that that's something that I do have concern about sometimes when DEI work is happening and people aren't understanding legal boundaries. I also understand that I'm very much somebody who likes things to become actionable. So operations, I'm always thinking about, okay, well, what's going to happen from this? It's not enough to me that somebody's going to say, oh, okay, I read how to be an anti-racist. So I understand concept and theory. My thing is, what are you going to do about it now? How does this impact other things? Um, and it's also that intuition that a lot of us have about who's out, who's not in this conversation and what's the barrier for them to be in this conversation. And you find out some of the most interesting things when you start asking those questions like who's missing. You start learning, oh, man, these people weren't coming to this museum. One of my museum clients, like they're not coming to the museum, not because the entrance fee is expensive, but because the building itself feels really ominous. I mean, ominous, and they don't feel like they belong there, and they're ashamed in terms of their kids asking them questions they may not know the answer to. So it's like finding out and not not making up stories about it, but understanding what actually creates this barrier for people and hearing that story so that you can close gaps. Wow, that is that is true. So it's not always sometimes apparent. It may also be these invisible um, cultural just things you can't put a finger on until you ask questions or until you're able to really investigate and dive deep, um, which is probably where that legal piece of it comes in, your ability to litigate, interrogate, ask questions, explore, understand. Um, I love that. So when you think about um, the work that you're doing, the approach that you bring, who your clients are, what is it that you provide in terms of a service that you're like, this is my sweet spot. These are the things that I enjoy doing. This is my, like, I could like live in this place all day. Yeah. Um, so when I think about my clients, I kind of think about them in three different buckets. Now, everything I do is I try to make sure that at least 80% of my work always falls into like creating more equity or inclusion or what have you. But I will tell you that my sweet, sweet spot that I love is working in community. Um, working with people who find themselves as the only ones in different spaces. Um, that could mean, you know, being the only Black person in a, um, in a sector where there are not many of you there. 
It can mean being the only woman in a, on a team that's a STEM-based team, the only mom, only parent, only what have you, LGBT person, but helping, supporting people who are in those spaces and helping them connect with their values so that their voice and their values align. Um, so I love doing that type of work, self-sustainability work where people can thrive in spaces where those systems weren't meant for them to thrive and they weren't really even meant for them to be there. So I love that work. Um, the other work I love is with um, organizations. So I do work with a lot of C-suite leaders who are trying to figure out, well, what is this DEI stuff? What does it mean? Or increasing their own comfort level around it. And when you, act, when you have those types of conversations, not only does it challenge me in ways, but it helps to make that work actionable within an organization, which means that you're having so much more, you're having scaled impact and how that organization um, uses its brand. How does it move from performative to action? Um, and some of that work has made me, challenged me in being much more empathetic and exercising grace because uh, some of the work that I do do is anchored in Brene Brown's work. So when I think about shame and grief, what I do know is that, of course, everybody has it. But when you're working with folks who um, might show up as part of the dominant culture, you know, let's just say white, cis, male um, CEO. And you think about, OK, what's it take for this person to go from transactional or I want to learn more to being transformational? Like, oh, my gosh, I want to do blah, blah, blah. It's important to me. Before you can start telling that narrative about what's equity mean and racial equity in my workplace, sometimes one of the barriers is thinking about shame too. Oh man, as people go on this journey, if it's a transformational journey, they're going to start asking themselves things or saying, oh man, I said that thing that was a bad thing and I shouldn't have ever, ever said it. What does that mean about me? Oh man, my church is not only is it all white, but they were actually trying to have us vote for whatever or try to do this or my kids community all looks like us they start being introspective and challenging themselves and that comes with all kinds of emotions to remember that your grandmother always uses that word that you realize oh my gosh i can't believe they're saying that you've got to go through some emotions yourself around that shame and get past that and even grieve right those relationships aren't going to be the same anymore once the you know, the scales of your eyes are lifted right and you might start seeing yourself differently. Your spouse might start seeing you differently as you start speaking this different language. And that's super hard work. So doing this work with that cohort of um, clients has really increased my own empathy for other folks. So going back to what you said, like working in community with people who are under are not rep are underrepresented in the spaces that they're at, um, working with leaders who are trying to figure it out and try to make things, you know, try to change things as well. And then just organizations where people see something's wrong in my organization. We got to figure this out. We don't know what we don't know. We need somebody to come in and support us with this. Got it. So when you're working in community with a group and um, they're now aware that they need to ask for help. Um, and then now we're in this global pandemic where I feel like everything, it's a pressure cooker. Everything that was there before, is amplified. It feels closer to the surface. There's just an urgency. How are you working with clients now? Is if it's different or not, or just with these communities that now are probably even more in a in a place of need, in a place of how I need to get I need to get help. I need resources. Yeah, so Garland, that's such a good question. So one of the things I'll say is that 
um, what's become harder in doing this work is that people feel like there's a greater sense of urgency. But for many of us, the urgency was already there. So the urgency is for whom? It's for them because now they recognize it. Maybe there's more accountability with people making demands. Um, but the urgency was always there. So one of the things I am usually challenged with is, one, clients really understanding why do you want to do this work? Is it because you feel like you're going to get called on the car carpet as a gotcha because your employees are saying you need to do it? And asking what is it? What will be different if you do this work? A lot of times people aren't asking those questions. And that's when you end up having the Black Lives Matter statement with no action underneath or no sustainability plan or no budget. Or you end up with these conversations that companies are having to talk about race and everyone, people are woefully unprepared and they're doing more harm than good. And it's not linked into a greater strategy at all for accountability on any end. And so more harm than good often happens. Yeah. And then when you're talking with leaders who this is the first time they are being, you know, called, like you said, called to the carpet, or maybe just feeling like, okay, this, this, we've been talking about it for two, three years as an organization or 10 years or whatever. And we, we can't fake our way through this. Uh, <laughs> we can't perform our way through this. Um, I, as a leader need to do that, you know, analysis, assessment, deep dive. Um, what are you seeing with organizations and leaders who are just, you know, digging in right now to do a better analysis and an assessment of where there are gaps? So certainly I will say that um, there is the fear is something new. This is scary. You know, we never talked about race at work and now I'm supposed to be talking about race. What in the world? <laughs> so it is scary. Um, it's scary because wait, wait, what if there's this gotcha moment on me? So if I said it in a soundbite, it is, leaders being comfortable being learners and not knowers. When you're a learner, that means that you have to be prepared when to not get it right. You have to be okay with not knowing the answers and you have to be curious and open. Most people are leaders in their are CEOs or what have you because they usually do know things. They do have this confidence. They are able to give people a sense of safety because, hey, if we don't know, he's going to know, she's going to know. You know, they're going to know the answer. So stepping fully into the space of being a learner also requires vulnerability and being able to be in a situation where you don't know how it's going to end up, um, that you are afraid, but you, you're going to do it anyway. Um, so I think that that is scary for leaders because usually it's if I study hard enough, I'm going to get an A on this, right? If I get all the facts together, I'm going to be on it. I'm going to have all the right answers. Like I can engineer the vulnerability out of this and I'm going to know and people are going to get it, right? Instead of saying, I don't know, I'm learning with you and I might mess up and I actually might need you to forgive me and give me grace. Yeah. And then I, I hear also um, with leaders feeling like it's like they want it to be over. Like, like can we rip the Band-Aid off? Can we just like... I, like, can we just let's, you know, everyone's trying to get to the end, whatever the end is, um, or success, or I, I got it. Like, like you said, get an A on the test. And this is not A on the test, rip off the Band-Aid, let's get it quick, work. 
Uh, it's every day you're learning something new. Every day you're discovering something. You're questioning something. You're curious about something. Um, it's not over, ended, done. Correct? Yes. Everything that you said, Garland. I think not having the, um, that all of a sudden the project is over and we did it, right? And what's even harder is that you don't have the boundary of this is work and this is home. It's actually who you are. It's how you engage with your neighbors. It's the conversations you have with your kid at the table. It's what you take up um, in terms of what you're what you're going to uh, challenge your neighbor on or not. It's it's fluid. DEI is not just something at work. And as you're learning, and you might be in these workshops and learning agendas and doing all this other work at at work about this, and you're with your employer, you can't just leave it there and realize, well, oh man, that's what a microaggression is. Oh man, that's what blah, blah, blah is. Oh, I didn't know that. You can't go home then and be working with your daughters on a project and not remember what that story and narrative you heard about sexism. It's pervasive. So, and it should be because it's about who we are as people, DEI work that you're not selling widgets. You're not learning better how to code. You're actually trying to figure out on the journey, who do I want to be and how do I become equipped to be that person? Yeah. So, I say this often because I feel like I understand this. I, we're whole people. We're showing up as our whole selves every day. Pandemic has forced us to, to do it if we weren't doing it before, because now you're at home. So your home and your work are the same place. Um, and you confront these things at work. And if you aren't confronting them in your personal life, or this has not been anything you've had to think about, um, now it's being brought to you in a very, like, I think sometimes overwhelming way. Um, and so people go home probably to escape thinking about it. <laughs> or maybe sometimes thinking, well, I'm at home, I'm in my safe space, or, I, you know, I've got my, I've got my homogeneous community or my whatever, that is my, my people. Um, but the whole part of this is disrupting everything for everybody. Like it's everyone is being disrupted right now. Um, so I, I really hope that when people are hearing you talk, um, it's not a white versus black. It's not a gay versus straight. Like it's all of us in the intersectionalities of all of us. We are all being disrupted. We are all learning and unlearning and relearning and figuring it out. And so no one's got it, whatever it is. Like we're all figuring it out. There may be some of us that are further along because we've been doing this work a little bit longer. Some of us who have been reading and studying and conversing and grappling longer, but we're all on the journey. Would you say that is a fair statement? Absolutely. I, I absolutely agree with that. I think one thing that is a bit of a nuance is that for many people, you know, if you're a woman in a science department or what have you in academia and you're being talked over all the time or someone says that word, you go home and you don't leave it there. I mean, you don't leave it at work. You go home and you might yell at your, your spouse or your kids because you're just upset or you're down. So for many of us, the lines have always been blurred because it's who we are in our lived experience. But now it's on the front page of, you know, the newspapers. It's 
for the world to see the ugliness of these things. And, you know, I'm, I'm impressed how CEOs are talking about and raising these conversations in organizations. My goal is for them to be more equipped and also for these conversations to be doing more good for everyone than doing harm and they result in action, right? So that we can get change, maybe incremental change, but make it actionable, bring in some accountability. So what would be an example of an action step? So can you walk me and I don't need a, like, just like, when you say action, because I know people are like, okay, well, what what does action mean? Like, does this mean now I have to get out there in the protest? Does this mean now I have, <laughs> I to, have to, you know, like, you know, go talk to all the black people in my, you know, neighborhood? Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, people, they're like, you know, they want to do something, but what does doing something mean? <laughs> yeah. So I would say for, or- for individuals, it looks different than for organizations, like an organization taking action. Um, right now on the surface, people just think about the D in DEI and they're like, oh, we need to hire more women, more people of color and count people like widgets. And they think that's the action versus the action being, um, I think about actions that are sustainable. Like, oh, okay. So when you have your performance management, some of that conversation is about self-awareness and how are you actually connecting with your team? What's that look like? So one of the um, assessments in in uh, DEI work might include your uh, team being rated on, I feel confident voicing a, um, opinion of dissent from my manager. That's telling you this person has a degree of psychological safety there. So those are things that are really going to matter and actually holding managers and leaders accountable for that, but that's part of your performance review. I want to start seeing those things in um, job descriptions hey, that you have emotional intelligence. There's a degree of self-awareness where you can blah, 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 blah. Um, Another thing that we're seeing now where organizations are certainly moving from performative is some organizations are being really clear. We're not going to contribute to these campaigns that support blah, 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 political campaigns that support A, B, or C. Like they're putting their money where their mouth is. So there are things, I mean, we saw the statements, right? In the beginning with the Black Lives Matter or racial unrest, we start seeing people say, hey, we believe Black Lives Matter. We believe, so that was a huge step how are you making sure that it's congruent with what's happening internally in your organization? And I love what you said earlier, Garland, about you need to talk to people and you need to talk to people who are directly impacted and hear them, believe them and listen. Right. So you need to talk to your employees who are the ones who, if you're saying Black Lives Matter, what are they saying? What do they need inside to feel valued? What's not working? Yeah, no, that is, that is huge. Um, and, and getting help from people who do this work and not putting this labor on the people who work there because they're there. Can we talk about that real quick? <laughs> so one of the things <laughs> I'm always called about is this, you know, this article that was in HBR about ERGs and now it's free labor. And you're just perpetuating inequity by having employee research groups do this work for free on top of their regular job, Right. Um, I absolutely believe that (laughs) people should be paid for not only emotional labor, but the work they're doing on top of their jobs. Um, Many people who are parts of ERGs can really, will be able to relate to the idea of how it's actually punitive for them because their manager who might not see value in it is saying, well, maybe if you did your job instead of this volunteer stuff, you'd be doing better. Hey, why are you doing that? That's not a part of your work. And I was one of those people who was subject to that when I was in a workplace and starting employee research groups. It was wait a minute, that's not even part of your job. Why are you doing that? Versus saying, hey, oh my gosh, you brought employee resource groups here and people are feeling more connected, not getting that. 
So you're paying all these different prices for doing this work, not only the emotional labor, not only all the organizing work, it's not bringing in and also bringing in knowledge that may not exist anywhere else in the organization. And you're getting punished for it versus paid for it and valued. So I'm a big believer, uh, Garland, in that of paying people for what they're the value they're bringing to your company. Oh, my goodness. I think I think Twitter is, I think, the most recent organization I saw that said that they would start doing that. Um, and I think there's a lot of other organizations right now just trying to self-organize around this to even understand what this means, have the focus groups and things like that. But I don't know, as you were saying about the actionable steps of how is this going to change how we interact with each other? How is this going to change um, having conversations that are not just an hour long, you know, town hall or whatever we're calling them? What are the next steps to really make this sustainable and not just a moment in time, but an actual movement where you're going to see, okay, because we're looking at a performance management process and we are looking at what it means to be promoted what are those actionable things that we haven't really written down on paper about what it means to be promoted, what it means to get to the next level versus, versus, Oh, I just know, I just know this person's ready to be a manager. I just know this person's ready to be a director. How do you know that? And that's how you get equity too, right? To make sure you're comparing apples to apples instead of as a person who I speak most with. So I see what they're doing and I give them the more challenging assignments and they're doing it versus somebody else who doesn't have that proximity to you, but is just as able to, but you haven't written down the criteria and you don't have a um, objectionable, um, objective rubric to apply as well. You're right. So operationalizing it is, is that's a skill that a lot of DEI folks don't necessarily bring. Um, you know, you might have some people who are great at talent acquisition. You have some folks who are even health benefits. Like, why do the benefits not include um, gender reassignment? Why does it not include, you know, all these things that have to do with groups who have different types of needs? So I think, and, and that's hard for organizations to do because you have to center a different voice and a different identity to get to equity. And we know that a lot of decision makers you know, you can't sit in 20 different identities, but that means you have to hire differently and you have to honor the different perspectives that are coming. Yeah. So what do you have coming up? Because I know, you know, when things like this occur and everyone, this is the moment, everyone needs to like get on board. I'm sure there's so much happening. Um, and so trying to really focus on, okay, before all this, I was moving in this direction Maybe I've shifted some, but this is still the direction I'm moving in. Um, what do you have coming up? What is it that, you know, you'd like to share? So I'm, there's some things I'm super excited about. You know, I'm still in my executive coaching practice, but I'll be rolling out workshops that I've only been doing privately with clients, um, rolling them out now for more people to actually um, uh, be a part of um, everything from equity work to dealing with um, ha sustaining yourself and your voice values alignment work as well. So there's just a host of different workshops that I've only done for um, clients and I'm going to make more public. The other part is I'm working on a series of books that will not likely come out this year, but next year. And if you know about choose your own adventure in which way books, there will I be those that. that will totally anchor in um, DEI work in terms of what to do in different situations from three different perspectives. 
um, and choosing which way to go and what are the implications of that. So I'm super excited about that. Um, I'll continue, you know, partnering with uh, Brene Brown's team and doing work on that end and uh, uh, equity uh, organization that I work with, Black-owned consulting firm Frontline Solutions that does tremendous work and equity work. And so I'll continue to partner with them as well. So those are things that keep me super busy um, and that I'm excited about. And it's great to see like the work that you love doing and the communities you love working with and serving, um, that there's a need and a demand. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, Well, I just want to thank you for your time. I know, you know, what we had to do to get you on the calendar today was like, you know, special. And I appreciate that. You guys are so, (laughs) I thank you. I really appreciate it. I'm honored to be here and to share and that you're, even interested in anything I have to say. So thank you for that. Oh my goodness. No, um, I, I do this podcast because I think there's a lot of people who are, you know, out here doing this work, but there are some voices, some systems, some frameworks, some people who bring a certain heart. I think sometimes the heart and the emotional to me is how you get the transformation. You can't do this and not be heart centered you know, emotional intelligence. Um, Yes, we can operationalize things. We can, you know, put things on paper, but the heart of who we are and how we connect to each other to really, like you said, have empathy, uh, give each other grace, be able to see each other in our brokenness, in our, you know, states where you're like, oh my gosh, Um, that's, how we make change. Like that's the part that's hard. Um, And that is just ongoing. And so people who I think bring that to their work, uh, I believe are the real warriors, foot soldiers, like, like that's, this is how we see things move. Um, Because you can't just, you know, write, write this into existence. You have to act it and be it. And and that's hard to do. It's hard to do. That's right. That's right. But it's really fulfilling when we can get it even in just moments um, and make connections with people we never thought we could connect with, especially in an emotional way, or see something in a new way. Um, it's so rewarding. Um, so it's worth it. Yeah, it's totally worth it. Okay, so I have two things I asked before I close out. Uh, and you have to finish this sentence. Inclusion and equity drives my work. Because it brings me more joy and also it makes me optimistic about the future for my two boys. Perfect. Um, What does life look like coming full circle to you? Oh, man, it is hopefully having grandkids and not having the same worries and fears I have for my boys right now. Okay. Um, so I will put in the show notes how listeners can connect with you. Um, of course, I found you on LinkedIn, so you can be found there. But um, I'll ex- you know put your websites and all of the things that you're participating in, even some articles, because she writes too, y'all, um, and some good stuff. <laughs> so I, I appreciate you for coming on today. I thank you for your time um, and just keep doing great work. Thank you, Garland. Thank you for having me. What a great interview with Aiko Bethea. I enjoyed listening to her. I heard so many themes um, that I just want to bring out. I think two specifically, the ones that jumped out most to me. Um, 
operationalizing sustainable actions. Uh, how are you making sure it's congruent with your statement? So I think so much of what we're doing right now is, you know, everyone wants to get involved. Everyone wants to take action. But what does taking action really look like? And I think she made a really great point about linking it to strategy and accountability. And what does that really mean in terms of your organization? So she mentioned specifically rubrics, job descriptions. Um, I've also seen organizations start to look at, you know, who they support, where they put their money, um, what organizations that they decide to partner with. Um, all of these things are how you differentiate yourself in terms of how your diversity journey looks. Um, and I don't think enough of us look at sometimes the sustainable piece of this. We're doing things, we have initiatives. Um, and there's something about the word initiatives for me that I've recently been thinking about. It means there's an end in sight. And what I'm realizing hearing not only her, but also um, Darnisa is there's no closure. The end idea or the, the check box or the get a good grade, like that thinking is really short-term thinking. And so if you're going to do something, think about it from how am I putting this into practice every day? How is this sustainable? Um, and honestly, is this something that I am adding accountability and linking to our larger strategy? The second thing that she said um, was affinity groups or whether you call them employee resource groups or business resource groups. Um, supporting people who may be in only in a workplace. She says she enjoys doing that work. And I think there's really something fantastic about realizing why those groups exist. Uh, it is important to realize that when you decide to start a group, um, that you get very clear on you know who it will be serving, why you are starting it, what the mission is of that group. Um, and then when you do have employee resource groups or affinity groups, um, making sure that the employees that are organically, you know, raising their hands to participate, that they are not penalized for doing this work. Um, she made a great point about how the emotional labor um, and the what I call the diversity tax um, oftentimes penalizes people for participating in these organizations. You can't, as an organization, say you want to create safe spaces and inclusion centers for people who are marginalized. And then when they choose to participate in it, you aren't necessarily giving them full support. I think the next step or the 2.0 for this is to pay folks. Um, as I was saying, there are some organizations that are starting to look at this, that are starting to realize that if you're going to have people doing this work, that they should be compensated for it because it is emotional labor and it is time that they are taking away in order to create these environments and these places for inclusion. Uh, when we say inclusion, we really are about having places for people to feel like they can find people who have a similar identity um, as well as allies who really are wanting to be educated and want to be made aware of what are the things that they can be doing to amplify voices, give people, you know, I say the space and the and the and the position that they need in order to um, be seen in these organizations. So, I, I'm really big on making sure your affinity group is um, 
serving the needs not only of the people but of the business um, and making sure that you're you're giving people an opportunity to share um, why this is important to them and not penalizing them for participating in this work. So um, those are the two things that I think for for me, what I heard the most out of what she said um, were the most impactful. Hopefully you found some of this um, great for you and I'd love to hear more. If you could leave a review, leave a comment um, on my Instagram page, I really would love to hear more. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please subscribe, share, and tell a friend. You can find me on Instagram at Full Circle with Garland. And if you'd like to be a guest, go to garlandfuller.com. Thank you for listening and sharing your time with me. I hope this next week helps you to recognize the full circles in your own life. Bye-bye.